All right, let's prepare our hearts for the word, Chad. Is it ready? Yeah. That's good. Okay. Wow. Well, I am glad to be here. I, uh, I've not been with y'all since y'all planted out, so this is great for me. Um, and it's really fun to go to all four churches in a weekend. Uh, you should try it sometime. It's sort of exhausting, but it's also a lot of fun. Um, <clears throat> and this also brings me back to, I don't remember when this was, the first time TCF planted out, we were in the student center that got torn down. And I like Yell Space much better than our, this is just a great uh, place to meet. Uh, Shelby remembers being in the hall as a little kid, and y'all have all this room, so this is really great. Um, so I'm doing James this morning. I'm going to try to preach James. And uh, I have to confess that when Billy asked me to preach it, I realized, I suppose I've studied James, but I'd never preached James, out of James at all. So uh, it was great for me. I'm excited to do it. But um, before we get into it, let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you <clears throat> that we can be here this morning. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the things we, we sing about, the fact that here now in this place, in gathered together, we can behold your son, Jesus. Uh, Lord, that we can truly, <clears throat> in faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, gather around your heavenly throne, worship you, recognize you and your son, Jesus. Uh, Lord, that as we look in the pages of your word, we can see his face. Uh, and so, Lord, we just ask that you would meet with us. Uh, Lord, that you would uh, bless this time together. Lord, I thank you for the way in which we can give, you can give one sermon in three different places, but your spirit can pinpoint the things that you want to pinpoint. I ask that you would do that. Uh, Lord, that it would not be just a transfer of content, but by your spirit, uh, you would work in our lives for the glory of your son, Jesus. Uh, So we honor you and we thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, first, let me just point out that the obvious that everybody knows that um, the Bible is not a book. It is a library. Some people call it. Some people call it a library of libraries. The Bible is so different. All right. And my favorite example of how different it can be is think about like the Song of Solomon. All right. Love poetry. And then think about the Gospels. How different is that? Or think about. Uh, think about the book of Revelation, really crazy uh, apocalyptic poetry, and then think about something like First and Second Kings, all right, stories, history. So there's so many different things going on in the Bible, and that is exactly why God gave us the Bible. It's almost like, you know, when, when, God, or when Paul says that God gives all kinds of different gifts to the body in the different members, there's this great diversity of gifts. He gives a great diversity of books because we need all kinds of angles on Jesus, We need all kinds of angles to be able to understand him. And so I'm very grateful for the book of James uh, because it is an angle. Again, when I study the New Testament, I almost always go to Paul. I think of all the scriptures I've memorized. I probably memorized more of Paul. Um, And Billy says that this is his favorite book. I don't know if, has he always said that, Stephen, that, that James is his favorite book? No, okay, yeah. Well, anyway, I have to say that James reminds me a lot of Billy. Like, it makes sense to me that it might be one of his favorite books because it reminds me a lot of him. So, um, I'm going to call the book of James like the reality check, uh, the reality check letter. It is the, the letter in the New Testament. I know a lot are like this, but it is one of the letters in the New Testament that's a swift kick in the pants kind of a letter. It is a, it's a letter for all people who like to 
go on about what they know, go on about what they think. It's kind of James saying, yes, show me. Let me see your living faith. Let me see what it really looks like. Um, I want to suggest that a central message of James is if you have really laid a hold of God's grace in Jesus Christ, your life will show it. And if it doesn't show it, you haven't laid a hold of his grace. That's, I think, a heart or that's close to the heart of what James is trying to say in this book. Um, So let me give an overview. And then what I'm going to do is pull out four of what I think are the central themes in the book of James. Uh, So first of all, who wrote it? Um, I don't know if Ben has addressed this. We don't really know. There's a lot of Jameses in the Bible. Uh, But the best candidate, I think, is this guy who's called James, the brother of Jesus. He was a relative of Jesus who wasn't in the circle of the twelve. He um, was some relative, didn't seem to initially follow Jesus and later did. It's the same James that led the Jerusalem church. So he's the guy in the book of Acts in chapter 15 that led the council that decides, look, Gentiles don't have to follow Jewish kosher laws. Um, And he's also the James that is later martyred. He's later killed for the faith. So it is probably that James. There's a great tradition that he was a man of deep prayer. All right, I want to read this from uh, the church uh, historian Eusebius. He said this about James. He was in the habit of entering alone into the temple and was frequently found upon his knees begging forgiveness for the people so that his knees became hard like those of a, of a camel in consequence of his constantly bending them in his worship of God. So he had this reputation of being old camel knees because he was in constant prayer for the Jewish people because by and large they had rejected the Messiah. Uh, we also think it's a circular letter. So it's one of these letters that the, the Christian church, the Jewish church in Jerusalem was scattered Uh, They had been sent all over the Mediterranean because of the persecution in Jerusalem. And so it's a general letter. He doesn't address a specific problem in this congregation or that, but he intends this letter as sort of a blanket to all of those congregations. And at its core, it is a call to repentance and to perseverance. Um, I love James because he is like Jesus in that he can be really hard and really affectionate. You know, you know what I mean? So just to give this example, he can, uh, he can in one breath say to, the, to these people, brothers and sisters, my dearly beloved brothers and sisters, and then in the next breath call them adulterers. All right, he can say brothers and sisters, and he can say you sinners. He's, he, he combines this great harsh intensity along with a great affection. And I think uh, that really does reflect Jesus. I mean, think about how Jesus was with Peter, right? In the same episode, he goes from, hey, Peter, you're the rock. I'm going to build the church on you to saying, get behind me, Satan. All right. So there's something of that in James's writing. He, he is doing this all the time. By the way, I want to make this comment, make this observation. Um, I know we want to be New Testament churches. We strive to be as close to New Testament churches as we can. But I think it's also sort of comforting to note that the New Testament churches apparently had a lot of problems. Do you, do you know what I mean? I mean, if you look and you pay attention, the, the Corinthian church, uh, this church, uh, the Galatian, or these churches, the Galatian churches, it's kind of both encouraging, right, to know that, yes, we are striving for, what, for God's best, but, man, these churches struggle. So if Paul had these troubles... We shouldn't be surprised when we have the same kind of troubles. Does that make sense? I think it's, I don't know, I think it's a measure of encouragement that comes from it. 
Um, so I think James is noticing two big things. One is external pressure. These churches are suffering persecution of some kind or oppression of some kind. And he's writing to try to challenge them about that. But worse than that, they seem to be having internal conflict. All right? There is gossip. There is slander. There seem to be cliques. There seem to be things going on that's dividing the community. And he is deeply concerned about those, probably more concerned about those than the external persecution. Uh, James loves paradox, and he opens the book with paradox, and paradox runs all the way through. So he says things like, whenever you face really hard things, you should rejoice. Now, that's nobody's habit, I assume. All right, it takes some effort to think that way. He says, but what you should do when you face really difficult circumstances is be glad that God is maturing your faith. Uh, So he says, hey, the poor, if you're poor, you should thank God and rejoice. All right, because you are in a unique position. Rich, you should weep and wail and lament. So he, he loves these paradoxes because he's trying to get our attention. He also loves, and I like this about James, he loves images. Okay? He's great at giving us images that stick with us and help us remember what he's saying. So just to, to sweep through some of the big images. Waves blown and tossed by the wind. Sun grass, or flowers on grass that are uh, burned up by the sun. Mirrors. Corpses, horses, ships, fire, rust. He's got all these fantastic ways to get our attention and to help us understand what he is saying. James is also, I'm going to suggest, the bossiest of the New Testament guys. Okay? He, I say this because I don't mean this disparagingly, but he has, in 108 verses, there are 59 imperatives. Okay? In 108 verses, he has 59 commands. Do this, do this, do this, do this. He has lots to say about doing and not a lot to say about maybe thinking or theologizing. Um, So he gives more commands than any other New Testament writer, okay, even in the Gospels with Jesus. Now, I also want to address this sort of... uh, this sort of issue of style. When, you, when I read Paul, especially like Ephesians, I love Paul. He's so clear in his style, right? There's this opening section of worship and praise, celebrating what God has done, and then there's this last section of, therefore, this is how you ought to live. I love that. James is not like that, all right? It's more like reading the Proverbs. How many people have noticed the similarity of James to Proverbs, okay? You read Proverbs, especially in that middle section, It's not clear how one little saying connects to the next little saying. Um, So I think there's a challenge in reading his style because it's very different. But I think there's a couple of central themes and I want to draw them out and I'll sort of go in order. I think the last of the four themes that I want to bring out uh, is probably near to the heart of what James is trying to to say. So I'm going to start with the first one, which is the one that everybody, I think, thinks about when they think of James. And that is this issue of the relationship between faith and works. So let's look in James chapter 2 and starting in 14. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. You know, diversity of gifts. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. 
But even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So James' central contention, one of the biggest things he wants to stress is that if you really have faith, if you have really encountered Jesus Christ, if you have really received his grace, it will change your life and it will change the way you live. Now, famously, Martin Luther didn't like James, all right? Protestant reformer Martin Luther didn't like James. Uh, He called it an epistle of straw. He actually, I didn't know this until recently, when he published his uh, New Testament that he translated, he put the book of James in an appendix, okay? Not in the main collection, because he constantly contended that it flatly contradicted what he read in Paul. All right, he felt like Paul, especially in Galatians and Romans, is preaching this message of salvation by faith alone through grace, and that James is clearly contradicting this. And I know Martin Luther's an important guy, but I'm going to say he was dead wrong. All right, and I want to just try to point out how he was dead wrong. Okay? First of all, um, Paul, clearly, if you're ever paying attention to Paul, unless you just close your eyes at certain parts of Paul's letters, Paul clearly thought that genuine faith, genuine grace is going to issue in a changed life and changed works. Does this make sense? I mean, in the very letter that was one of Martin Luther's favorites, Galatians, Paul will say in Galatians 5, 6, he says, listen, circumcision doesn't matter. Uncircumcision doesn't matter. Does anybody know what he said in this time? He says, but only faith working through love, right? So right there in that letter, he says, listen, if you have real faith, it's going to work. It's going to be active. It's going to be completed. It's going to be doing things because of the grace that you have received from God. Later on, when he gives the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, the whole point of that is for us to be able to look at ourselves and say, let's see, do I have works of the flesh or do I have fruit of the Spirit? So that if I have works of the flesh, I should stop and go, man, I need to get a hold of God's grace so that I have this fruit. So the whole reason he gives it is to be able to say, let's look at your faith and see if it's actually alive. All right. So all over Paul's letters, you see clearly that Paul fully expects God's grace appropriated through faith to issue in active good deeds. In fact, I would encourage everybody, if you've never done this, to do a study of the phrase good works or good deeds in the New Testament. It's great. It shows you how central Paul, Jesus, Peter, James all thought it was. So on the one hand, uh, I think it's a misunderstanding of Paul's teaching on grace to think that it's not going to issue in a changed life. And number two, I think James totally understands grace, okay? He doesn't discuss it as much because, um, well, I tell you, he does discuss it. He's trying to emphasize a different end of it. So let's just look at 118. Paul says this, actually 116. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. 
Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James is unequivocal. He says, listen, God is a good father who generously gives good gifts. All right, I love this phrase, father of lights. It comes up nowhere else in the Bible. He is the father of everything that is good, everything that is beautiful, everything that is praiseworthy. It comes from him, and he generously gives to all whoever asks. That is grace, right? That's that's the nature of grace, to be a gift. And so James is starting on the bedrock of God's character and who he is. Does that make sense? He centers everything on God's a good father. He gives good gifts. So let's see those gifts at work in your life. He goes on to say, of his own will, he brought us forth. All right, it was the father's delighted, determined pleasure to birth us anew in Jesus. That was his purpose. Once again, it's rooted in God's character. And then he says, to bring us forth, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That's James and other New Testament writers shorthand for the gospel message. Or for the message of Jesus Christ. It was God's determined and delighted pleasure to birth us anew by his grace through the message of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness offered through him and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so for James, everything is rooted in God and his character and in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the grace that comes to us from that. It is not like he doesn't think that. Does that make sense? He's not writing in the book of James about earning salvation. He is writing to say, this is what salvation looks like when one has received it. And he's calling us to really receive it. In fact, we'll get into that. Uh, we'll get into that in a minute, that he is calling us to this deep reception of it. Does that make sense? So faith works. It's not faith or works. It's faith. When it is alive and genuine, it issues in a changed life. And that's a central issue. So that brings me to the second point. James highlights behaviors that he thinks exhibit a changed life, changed by grace, okay? I'm not going to talk a lot about the money issue, but he talks a lot about money. He talks a lot about how if grace has really changed you, money will no longer be something you strive for like an idol. Money will no longer be something you use to pamper yourself and luxuriate and just consume. Money will be something that you use to relieve others, to create hospitality, to give life elsewhere. So he's deeply concerned about money, but more deeply, as an example of changed behavior that he's concerned about, he's concerned about speech, right? the power of the tongue, the power of our mouths to bring life or bring death. And I think he gets the most eloquent when he's talking about the tongue. So let me just read this sample of what he says about the tongue. It starts halfway through verse five in chapter three. He says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. You know, think about these California wildfires. Maybe somebody dropped a cigarette. I don't know. Thousands of acres of land, houses burned, people dying from just a spark. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. 
With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So for James, real Christian maturity, a real changed life will issue in, a, in your speech being con- self-controlled, in your speech being a source of life and not a source of cursing, not a source of hurt. All right, you remember the old sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you? That's not a biblical teaching. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words can kill or make alive. Words can bring life or they can bring death, and that's a deep, central teaching of Scripture. So he centers in, he identifies several sins of the tongue. So, for example, cursing, which I think, I think includes things like insulting people, saying things with deliberate intention to be hurtful. With it, our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people made in the likeness of God. Oh, we get up and pray every morning and then, hey, you jerk. Right? We, out of the same mouth comes insults and thanksgiving to God. He says, guys, that should not be so. Slander. In 4.11, he says this. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, let me explain this logic here. How are you judging the law? Well, first of all, he says... Listen, if you slander your brother, you're judging the law. How? Well, the law says don't slander your brother. And if you go ahead and slander your brother, you're looking at the law and saying, well, I like that, that, and that command, but I'm not going to obey that command. And so you're sitting in judgment over the law and determining what you can obey. You're sitting in judgment over the Bible and determining what you can obey and what you're not going to obey. He says you become a judge of the law, but God is the judge. Now, let me speak really briefly to this issue of slander, Um, because I think it's easy with that sort of fancy older word. We don't use that every day. We use it in lawsuits. But slander is simply this. You saying something about somebody else when they're not there to the effect that it lowers their reputation, to the effect that it shapes the way people perceive them. It may be true. In fact, I think often slander is true, but it has the effect of defaming them, of changing their reputation, of causing people to think of them in a certain way. Uh, and slander is deeply sinful. All right, and here's a good measure. So in a small community, in our communities, we love one another. We do talk in love about one another. But here's a good way to judge if you're slandering or not. Okay. If you would feel uncomfortable going to the person that you have had a conversation about and telling them all about that conversation, it's a good chance you're slandering them. Does that make sense? If you couldn't just look them in the eye and say, yeah, we were talking and we we said this, then that's probably slander. Now, in good relationships, I should point out, your friends should be able to talk about you. My friends, my close friends, have all the freedom they want to talk about me because I know they're going to talk to me. I know they're going to they're gonna share with me the things they're talking about. All right? I know they're talking about me because they love me. But again, use that measure. If you're uncomfortable to go to the person you've been talking about and say, yeah, so-and-so and I were talking and I said this, then probably you've stepped over a line and you need to step back across it. Amen? He gets on to boasting. This is another sin of the tongue he addresses. This is in 4.13. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? 
You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So I think I have maybe thought about this passage as, okay, so the, the, the issue here is anytime you make a plan, you must append to the end of that statement, Lord will, and then the creek don't rise. Okay? You must say at the end, it's like sort of uh, God's going to zap you unless you say, Lord willing, after every plan you make. I don't think that's what he's getting at. Okay? He's getting at the issue of boasting. He's getting at the issue of bragging. He's getting at the issue of you taking a little pride in your ability to do X, Y, or Z. Because in verse 16, he says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Okay, so what he's trying to get at with this passage is the issue of boasting. And by the way, I think we can kind of tend to think of boasting as sort of an irritating personality quality. You know what I mean? We sort of think of it like, yeah, that person's kind of braggadocious, kind of irritating. Note what he says. As it is you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Okay, it's not, an, it's not a personality quirk, it's evil. It's something to be turned from. Amen? Now, so he's concerned about the power of the tongue, but at the end uh, of the book, he gives an example of how the tongue can be used to give life, to heal, to bring goodness. So in uh, chapter 5 and verse 13, he says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray with your mouth. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The point of confession is for the prayer, among other things. The point of confessing of sin to one another is to say, listen, I've done this, please pray for me. All right, because he says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And he goes on to talk about the prayers of Elijah. So the point of all these is the the powerful, the life-giving use of the tongue. Does that make sense? So he says, any difficulty going on, pray. Don't complain, pray. If you're joyful, thank God by singing and praising him. If you're sick, have the elders pray for you. But the point is he is celebrating the power of the tongue to give life, all right? And again, to get back to the point I made at the beginning of this theme, for him, someone whose tongue is used for life consistently, that's a mature Christian. That is a sign of a changed life, changed by the gospel. All right, the third theme. I don't know if this is a theme so much as a technique. The third theme is this. Paul, I like that there's this aisle here, except you're in the middle of the aisle, so I don't know, but I don't know what this says about you. But... uh, He likes to draw a line and have you step on one side or the other of it, right? He he draws a line in the sand and says, you're over here or you're over here. And this is a very biblical theme. This is a very, I mean, this is a persistent pervading theme in scripture. So think about the sheep and the goats. Think about all the way back to Genesis. One of the most repeated verbs in the opening creation account is to separate, God separates light from darkness. He separates the sea from the dry land. He separates the waters above from the waters below. The priests, one of the most common words used for the priests in Leviticus is to separate, all right, to make division. 
All right. And maybe the most important in the Old Testament is when Moses in Deuteronomy is called to go to the two mountains. Right. And he says, go up on one mountain and declare all the curses of the law. Go up on the other mountain and declare all the blessings and then tell Israel you have a choice. There's no neutrality. So this theme is that theme of in life, there is no neutrality between God and man. Right. You are either on one side or the other. So James is doing the same thing all throughout this letter. I will zero in on one, but let me just point out the different ways he does it. So he says there's two kinds of wisdom, one from above and one from below. He calls it a demonic wisdom. Uh, There is pride or there is submission to God and humility, and he highlights that in all kinds of ways. He says there's the way of life or the way of death. He says you are either a friend of God or an enemy of God. You know, and you're always thinking when you ask people, are you a Christian that brings all kinds of baggage with that? Maybe that's a good way to talk to people is, are you a friend of God or an enemy of God? Right. Uh, because it, it sets things maybe a little more clearly. Are you a doer of God's word or are you merely somebody who hears it and you wind up deceiving yourself? Are you a blesser or a curser? Is your mouth a well of fresh life-giving water or salty water that is brackish? All right. Are you filthy or pure? So he is drawing this line and calling us to pick our side. Let me look at, in particular, when he discusses the two kinds of wisdom. This is in chapter 3, starting in 13. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, from the Father of lights, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Again, James is giving us a measure. If in your community, if in your relationships, there's envy, there's jealousy, there's bickering, there's, then that's clearly demonic wisdom. All right? That's clearly wisdom coming from somewhere else. Verse 17, though, he says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. Okay, if you're wise, you make peace. If you're wise, you endeavor to heal relationships, gentle, open to reason. I love that. Have you ever been yourself not open to reason or dealt with somebody that clearly they didn't want to reason, they wanted to rant, right? They wanted to complain. They really wanted to just stay where they were. They didn't want to open their hearts to hear and listen and discuss. The wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial. It's sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So James is drawing this line and he's calling uh, us, he's calling his original hearers to make a choice. (laughs) Excuse me. And that brings us to the last issue. I think Near to the heart of the book of James that James is trying to address is the issue of double-mindedness. Okay, this this word double-minded comes up uh, directly in many places, and it also comes up as a background theme. Um, And ultimately, it gets down to this. For James, if your life is not changed by the grace of God, then the issue is adultery. Okay, he calls them adulterers. All right, what is adultery? Think about the analogy. It's somebody who's unfaithful to their marriage vows. Remember how consistent a theme adultery is in the Bible. 
Okay? Israel is repeatedly depicted by the prophets as an adulterous wife. All right? And sometimes you hear people talking about certain sins. People use the language of, well, yeah, I'm struggling with X, Y, and Z. They've heard that language, I'm struggling with this sin. Okay? What if your spouse was committing adultery and they said, yeah, I'm really struggling with adultery? Okay, you, no, you don't struggle with adultery. You either do it or you turn from it. Does that make sense? And what I think James wants to say is ultimately people have not decided whether or not they're going to be fully submitted to God. He wants to say, listen, if you want to be fully submitted to God, his grace is going to be available to you to change. And if you're not, then you're an adulterer. Does that make sense? It's harsh, but it's the word James uses. All right? To be double-minded is to be an adulterer. To be double-minded is to not yet have decided to forsake your adultery. It is to have, you're, you're torn between two opinions. So he says in 1.8 that the man who asks God for help, have you ever, the, the person who says, yes, I want God's help, but they don't get it, it's because they haven't really decided they want it. Does that make sense? They haven't really decided they want his help. It, it, it gets down to that. He says in 1.8, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In, ver, in chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Um, when we were at the church vacation, did anybody go down to the rock quarry? Shelby, were you there when I, the girl... So we were down at the rock quarry, down at the land between the lakes, and it's this old rock quarry from back before they, flo- they created the land between the lakes, and there's about a 30-foot cliff that people go there and jump into the water. And everybody parks in there and they watch people jump or stand up there for 30 minutes trying to decide if they're going to jump. Well, we went in there one day and there was a teenage girl up there. And she had clearly been there a while. Her family was down there waiting. And she was really wrestling with whether she was going to jump. And she finally took a running, you know, she was running at it. And at the last second, she changed her mind. But her momentum kept going and she did this, and I thought I was going to watch her die. Brent was there, and he was in a boat, and he went in the water, because he, I mean, he didn't know. She did a belly flop, okay? So she didn't die. I imagine that really hurt, but the bottom line is, she was double-minded, right, about jumping off. She hadn't committed, and the result was disastrous, all right? I believe James is getting at that very thing in terms of relationship with God, it's sort of like the, uh, the New Testament version of Elijah at Mount Carmel, right? Everybody remember this? He, Elijah, once again, he says, we're going to have a contest. We're going to get the prophets of Baal. They can set up their altar and their ox, and I'm going to get an altar and an ox. And whichever God answers by fire, that's God. Follow him. And he says in that place, he says, how long will you limp between two opinions? Okay, he sees that Israel has like, yes, we believe in God, but, you know, we're not always sure that he's going to give us everything we need. So we're just going to do a little adultery on the side to make up for it. We're just going to worship Baal a little bit. We're going to go to these resources a little bit. And Elijah says, stop limping. Make a call. All right. Commit entirely. So for Paul, I'm excuse me, for James, I think he sees this as the central problem of his audience is that they are double minded. They're not fully submitted. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. All right, that's good advice to any Christian any time. 
But he's talking to a people who are double-minded, and that's why they're struggling. They're a slave of their own passions. He uses that great image of, of pregnancy and giving birth. He says, listen, God doesn't tempt you. He's not the source of your sins. It's you. Each person is tempted when he is lured. He's seduced by his own desire. And once he's seduced, then he gets pregnant, right? And he gives birth to sin. And in the end, sin grows up and kills him. It's a great image for the way in which it is our desires that war with us. So he says that's their ultimate problem. They want to be friends of the world and friends of God. They want a little bit of God and they want a little bit of Baal. So James' remedy for overcoming this is not self-discipline. His remedy for overcoming this is all the way back to one of the most important Christian teachings, repentance and humility and brokenness and opening yourself up to God and receiving from him his gift. He says, so for example, he says, um, verse, chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. Now, wisdom for anything, yes. But in particular, I think he's talking about a wisdom uh, for repentance. So he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. In verse 21 of the same chapter, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So what's his answer? It is humbly asking God for help and humbly receiving the word of truth that is able to save your souls, the implanted word. Now, I think behind his imagery here, he says, well, behind his imagery here, I believe is the parable of the sower. Okay, because he says, listen, if God plants his word in you, it will take root and it will produce fruit. The question is whether you're receiving it or not. So I think this is there's an admonition here to be good soil, right? Those different soils, the on the road or the rocky soil or the soil with weeds. He says, clear all that stuff out, clear it out so that you can receive it. And he says, I guarantee you, if you humbly and consistently receive the word of life, it will bear fruit in your life. Now, a big theme that James addresses is this theme of trials, of adversity, of difficulty. All right. And he wants to remind them that if a seed is going to germinate, it needs that adversity. Okay. Everybody knows about the sequoias. Everybody know about this? For years, no new sequoias were sprouting up out west. We were really worried. We finally realized no new sequoias were sprouting up because we were controlling fires. And the fires actually made the cones open up so the cones could germinate and produce new fruit. All right? And that's true of a lot of seeds in nature. Here's the bottom line. A seed needs stress to germinate. And this is why James begins the whole letter with rejoice in trials. Rejoice in difficulty. Rejoice in those very difficult things because if you are gazing intently into the law of liberty, if you are receiving the implanted word and you let the difficulties in life do what God wants them to do, it will produce fruit. Does that make sense? So he says, listen, guys, you need to turn fully to God. You need to humble yourself. You need to open up your heart. He says, 4-7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 
Relationship with God is something to be received, but it's got to be received on our knees in humility and desperation. It is a total gift, but it doesn't come to the indifferent. And James is urging us not to be indifferent. Now, I want to address this because uh, I think sometimes we think, uh, we can tend to think that the Christian life means, well, once I'm a Christian, no problems. And if you think that, you're not paying attention to the Bible because he makes it very clear. God makes it very clear again and again. If you follow him, there will be problems. If you follow him, it will be difficult. A couple years ago, I had a test, a medical test. What's the one where they give you contrast? Iodine. Does CAT scan? Okay, so I had a CAT scan. I don't remember why. And they said, listen, when you get the CAT scan, you're going to feel a little burning in your throat. Anybody ever had a CAT scan, had the burning? You feel a burning in your throat. So you're going to feel a burning in your throat. I got in there, and all of a sudden, my throat started burning. I was like, hey, my throat's burning. And they said, yeah, we told you you'd feel a burning in your throat. No, 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 it's, it's burning. Yeah, we know. <laughs> we told you this was going to happen. I think sometimes we do that. I want to follow God. And then really hard things happen. Duh. God is treating you like a son or a daughter so you can grow up. So that your faith is not, your faith is proven faith. Your faith faces some adversity and it, and it grows up, it matures. So that's why he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I love that. A broken car, that's various kinds. Temptation, yeah, that's various kinds. Arguing with somebody, yeah, that's various kinds. You're in a bad mood, yeah, it all falls under it. It all falls under the category of something that God can use to strengthen your faith, to deepen your faith, to make sure it's not just, uh, just fair-weather faith. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. But the one, I love this, the one who looks into the perfect law. This word look here is not just a glance. It is a word used for somebody who's going along and they see something and they stop to look at it. <laughs> this morning at JCF, during worship, Paul's leading worship, and I saw an insect fly and land on his guitar. And I could see it. I mean, we're worshiping and I'm looking at this. It was an insect. It was up here. And I'm seeing it. I'm like, it was moving. And it moves where his fingers were going to be. And, and then he went, ah, and worship stopped, okay? So I was worshiping, and then all of a sudden I saw that insect, and I was, that's what he's talking about. All right, it turns your attention, and he says, but the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and perseveres. In other words, he looks and keeps looking, okay? He, he, he turns and he looks and he keeps looking into the perfect law of liberty. By the way, law of liberty, what a great phrase. We think of laws as restricting. This is a law that sets you free. It says, when you look intently into the perfect law of liberty, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 5.11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. All right, so one of the central things is, look, you really turn to God. You really cry out. He will give you what you need to live a life that pleases him. And you persist in it. You be steadfast in it. You do not give up in it. I want to use this analogy. All analogies break down somewhere, but I think this analogy is very helpful. Imagine somebody gives you a free gym membership. 
And along with that free gym membership, you get a personal trainer who you are their only subject. You get a personal trainer, you get a personal dietitian. You don't have to go on the internet and find out what foods you shouldn't eat. This person, and then you get a personal cook to cook all your food. You get a doctor. You get your own personal sports psychologist to help you through all the different things. You get all these resources, and you don't show up. You don't avail yourself of that free gift. That is precisely what James is getting at. Okay? I don't know the exact details of the statistic, but an average gym membership, let's say it costs $30 a month. That's actually a really great bargain. Do you know why? Because about 60 to 70% of people who have gym memberships don't use them. Right? If everybody used them, they'd have to raise their rates really high. They rely on a majority of the people that avail themselves of their services not to use their services. And that's a lot of people with God's grace. They don't avail themselves of those services. When Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, it's like this gym analogy. God himself, creator of heaven and earth, who gave his beloved son Jesus and has given you the Holy Spirit, is all of these things and more to make you like his son Jesus. And most of the time, people's problem, the problem is not the resources. The problem is we don't avail of our, ourselves of the resources of grace. And that is what James is trying to shake us and get us to wake up and say, listen, lay hold of God's grace. So here's the point. As Bonhoeffer said, grace is not cheap. Let me say it this way. God never said that his help would mean there is no striving and difficulty and work. Okay, God doesn't want us to earn anything from him, but he does want us to strive and labor to cooperate with his grace. So my favorite example of this is Jesus says, is any of you weary, heavy laden? Come to me. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I am meek and gentle of heart. So yes, there is a relief there, but notice, what's a yoke? It's a labor device. Okay, so Jesus is not saying you're not going to work. You are going to work. But you come and get in the yoke with me, and I will do the majority of it. Okay, but it doesn't mean it won't involve striving and difficulty and testing and Changing. Does that make sense? All right. So, again, if I could sum up, part of what James wants to say is sometimes it is more common for somebody who's just a blatant, obvious sinner to get a hold of God's grace and really change than it is for us who sit in the pews week after week. Right? And he wants to say, listen, guys, Christian maturity is to be always progressing. All right. In fact, I want to put it this way. Christian perfection is to be always progressing. Okay, Paul said, I've not arrived, but I haven't stopped. I've not arrived, but I am not done moving on. I have not done growing. Peter says in the book of 2 Peter, uh, he says, listen, if you have these qualities and they're increasing then you don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ in vain. He doesn't say you have these qualities perfectly. He says you have them and they're increasing. Does that make sense? So all through the scripture, you get this idea that a real genuine faith is a faith where, you, a faith where there is growth. It doesn't mean it's necessarily fast, 
but it's there. Does that make sense? So the gospel of Jesus Christ is not deficient. And part of the good news that we have to give people is that the grace of God in Jesus will change their lives if they want to lay hold of it. And James in particular wants to challenge us to really face facts and see if we have really decided or if we're still playing games and playing both sides of the fence. Amen? It's a, it's a harsh message, but it is a life-giving message too. Uh, and I think it's one that we need to really lay hold of. Amen? Amen. So Ben, where's Ben? What now? What do I do? Do I dismiss this? Do you dismiss this? Sure. Any thoughts or comments before we close? Is that good? Is that helpful? Um, I love this book. And, you know, again, again, on surface, the language of James and the language of Paul seems to be flatly contradictory. But if you really pay attention to what they're saying, it's totally different contexts. Uh, It's addressing totally different concerns. Uh, and so I think it is very, and like always, we need to dig in and pay attention. Ben? Yeah, I was just trying to say, I think uh, moments of conviction that uh, a messy like this can bring are not Jesus was constantly saying super hard things, but it was meant to bring us to our knees, and then we could lay hold of that grace. And uh, yeah, amen. And again, I, I think this is so key, especially at the University of Kentucky, especially, you know, probably it seems like a majority of people that come into our churches are Christians of some stripe, right? They've had some Christian background. And part of the message we want to give is, listen, don't believe the half gospel of just forgiveness and no life change. God wants to make you like his son, Jesus. That is the most difficult thing in the world to do. But God has bent all his resources on it if we will stay in the yoke with Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right, let's stand up and I'll, uh, I'll close this in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we want to thank you for the harsh word that wounds so that it can heal. Father, we thank you that your love is not an indulgent love, but your love is such that you are bent on bringing us true health, true life, true happiness in unity with your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word that it is so powerful. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would... Um, that you would forgive any of my weakness in communication and allow your spirit to highlight the things that want to bring us to real repentance. God, I pray that you would identify any double-mindedness in any of us uh, and that you, would, that you would cause us to be a people who have really and are always really crying out for your grace to be and do what you want us to be and do. God, we ask that our faith would be vibrant with beautiful deeds done in faith and in the name of your son, Jesus. God, I ask that this week you would inspire patience. You would inspire uh, reaching out to befriend another. You would inspire words of life. You would inspire cups of cold water given in the name of Jesus. Uh, Lord, let us be alive with your faith this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, y'all.